I'd like to think that all of us in content marketing in a good 10, 20 years are basically going to be the command crew of the USS Enterprise in the next generation. So Star Trek has entered the chat. So, okay. So I'm a Star Trek fanatic. I didn't even know that for the record. I did not know that. Welcome to Page One or Bust, your ultimate guide to getting on page one of search engines. In this episode, we're talking to one of the world's most recognized experts in digital content strategy and marketing. Robert Rose is a highly sought after consultant, best-selling author, keynote speaker, and his firm, The Content Advisory, has worked with hundreds of brands, including Fortune 100 organizations. Also, as we found out, he's a big Star Trek fan too. In this episode, we take a journey with Robert through time and space to talk about the formalization of content marketing and look ahead to the future by learning from our past experiences. You don't want to miss what Robert has to say. But before we jump into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Page One or Bust is brought to you by Demand Jump. Get insights, drive outcomes with Demand Jump. Get started creating content that ranks for free at demandjump.com today. And now here are your co-hosts, Drew Detzler and Ryan Brock. Welcome back to Page One or Bust. This is your host, Drew Detzler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, Ryan Brock. Ryan, how are we doing? Yo. Oh, God, I'm doing so great today. It's a cool day in Indianapolis. The sun is shining, and I feel like I can breathe again. Yeah, I'm with you. It's beautiful. And it's an exciting day because we have a man who really needs no introduction, but here I am doing it anyways, uh, Robert Rose. Robert, welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm, it, it is also cool here in Los Angeles, so I'm, I feel like I can breathe again. Yeah, it's good. It's, it's all good. I feel like we need to have a quick sidebar to, to know what cool means to someone who lives in L.A. <laughs> versus what cool means to someone who lives in Indiana. Fair enough. And that's the, the key here is, is that September, we've had the weirdest weather here in Los Angeles for the last six months. I mean, it actually rained in August, which is crazy yeah. town here in L.A. Absurd. And But um, cool here in Los Angeles is a nice 72, 73 degrees, actually. Wow. I wish you could see my watch, listeners. We're not even going to put this on. So it's, it's exactly <laughs> 72 degrees here in Indianapolis and sunny. So I think we're all on the same page. Wow. West coasters, Midwesterners, we're more alike than you might realize. (laughs) (laughs) We're coming together. We're bringing the world together. The guys it's, it's, I'm, I'm very, very pleased. about. Oh, I feel good about humanity now. Let's, (laughs) let's, let's have a great show guys. All right. That's where I come in. Let's, let's find some differences. Uh, All right. So Robert, let's, let's dive into SEO and kind of really when SEO first came on your radar. You know, it, it, I would say probably 2001, 2002, you know, so I came out of uh, the agency world. And then previous to that, I was in the television business. But as the internet started to really get its feet underneath it, and Google started to come out, and we were thinking about Yahoo still, there wasn't a lot of SEO as it pertained to Yahoo. But Google was sort of the first introduction to trying to start to rank against all this content we were putting out there really for the idea of trying to find buyers. You know, this was this was even pre the idea of them offering a paid search. You know, but before before that even existed, you know, the 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 battle was on to try and get to the top of Google search rankings and we were full into content production mode to try and do that. Wow. Okay, so you talk about that era and my brain goes back to what I was doing in 2001-2002. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm old. Yeah. Yeah, for <laughs> reference, I was like 14 years old at that yeah. point in time, but I was just screwing around on G cities, you know, yeah, making, you making websites that were little more than collections of under construction gifts. 
and, you know, horrible things. So I would love it if, if you could transport us through time, Robert, and maybe we can get the we can get Taylor, get a producer to, to, to play some, you know, <laughs> and we can welcome everybody to, you know, Y2K SEO with Robert Rose. Like, what was that like? <laughs> what, what, like, what are some tips? If let's say I get the time machine, I want to do SEO in 2001. What's your best advice for me? Well, it's a, it's, it's, it's really easy. It's, it went certainly a lot easier than it is today. You know, the, the, the key was, and this was sort of everybody's job was to big, build big websites. You know, it was build deep, big informational websites that could answer every question that you could possibly think of around your product or service. I mean, it was really, it was when, you know, Marcus's, Marcus Sheridan's whole, you know, sort of answer all your you know customers' questions, ideas, you know, actually was useful. I don't think it's terribly useful today, but, you know, many of the companies we were dealing with, you know, had 25,000, 30,000 page websites because simply it was easier to rank if you just had a, a, a ton of content. And so it was literally throw as much as you can against the wall and a lot of it would would stick. And what really drove it was the efficiency that you would get because Google search, paid search, started to really take front and center stage because it got competitive really fast. And so as Google search and paid search more, more specifically got really competitive, the idea was how much money can I save by appearing organically on page one versus how much how much do I have to spend to be on, on page one? So that was the battle of the day. It was how much content that you could create to create a more efficient ad spend. Interesting. And and so again, welcome to AI SEO with Robert Rose. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've come full circle in some ways, but we'll get back to that later, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, we will. So it's, uh, th- there's definitely been this, sh- you know, the shift from early on for, of of quantity to quality in, in yeah. today's world, certainly. So what kind of formalization did you see there, and when did that start to take place? And and then we'll kind of dive into what is quality. Sure. Well, my observation is is that that really happened after the the last financial crisis, right when we started to see, you know, the 2009, 2010 to, I'd, I'd call it the 2010 to 2013 timeframe, which was, okay, social media now was really driving a lot of, of traffic and it was starting to drive a lot of our efforts in marketing and search, you know, and this is especially true when we start thinking about the idea of content marketing, of creating that high value content. We got, and, and interestingly, it was really a U.S. challenge. We got wrapped around the axle of SEO and how content and content Content marketing was really going to drive business. And, and so it was this idea of how do you start creating high quality, useful content? You know, there was so much of the early days was snackable content versus meaty, long pieces, long, valuable pieces that really started to emerge in that time frame and, and how we could not just answer the questions, not just answer the questions that our customers were asking, but actually start to provide the things that they didn't know the answer to. In other words, yeah. how do we start ranking for the things that, you know, are getting asked that don't need an immediate answer, but need an in-depth sort of journey sort of idea. And that was that 2010 to 2013 timeframe where we really saw the birth and and growth and hyper growth of of content marketing and blogging and, and the use of social media to drive SEO. See, now we're getting into a more comfortable time frame for me anyway. I started my content marketing agency 
Metonymy Media, actually on this very day of recording, September 13th, 2011. So How about that? Like it's at the time, I didn't know anything about content marketing. I, I just wanted to be a writer and I wanted people to pay me to write. But, yeah. you know, in a certain way, as we went on from 2011 and I found out that like kind of nobody knew about content marketing, like everyone was just starting to figure it out and everyone was just right. like, oh, you do content, we'll throw a few hundred dollars your way to write something for us. It's just, it, it is fascinating for me to hear about the, the before times because like, I feel like I've got a certain bit of snobbishness having come up in the wild west of content marketing 2010, 2011, 2012, but the wild west probably doesn't even scratch the surface of what it was like before that. Well, it's exactly right. Cause it was, I mean, it was the kind of thing where, you know, God help you if you were in like real estate or the credit card business or some other commoditized sort of area where just the sheer volume of content. You know, if you were selling some sort of specialized seed or you were some sort of selling some sort of widget that nobody knew about, you were golden in those days, right? Because nobody was talking about your stuff. And so it was all about how do you actually just create it so you can own a, an entire category by doing that. And what really happened in that 2010 to 2013 timeframe was that you had to sort of create categories in order to actually create some sort of unique thing that people would be searching for. The quintessential example of this, of course, is inbound marketing created by HubSpot. Everybody was searching for marketing automation. Everybody was searching for the idea of email marketing and drip campaigns and those kinds of things. And when they invented inbound marketing, they actually created a search term that would create a category and they would be able to sort of dominate it. Yep. Let, let me ask you uh, one more question around that, that Robert, around the, the kind of shift from, from quantity to quality that we saw, you know, call it 2009, 10 to 2013, because I think it may be applicable to what we're seeing today. Mm. Why? Why sure. did we see that shift? Why did, why did that happen? Competitiveness, I think, you know, I mean, it became too easy. I mean, a lot of people, you know, it's funny because one of the conversations we have a lot is the democratization, and I'm using air rock and roll quotes there, and I know we're not on video, but the idea is, is the democratization of of content. And, and what happened was the ease of use, and I use that term with a huge tongue in my cheek, the ease of use of content management systems and the growth of things like blogging and the ability for us to manage content. Creating content didn't get any easier, right? Creating yeah. ideas and expressing those ideas and really doing that in a creative and, and qualitative way didn't really change. What changed was the ability and the rapidity with which we could publish stuff. So yep. social media, the growth of social media, the growth of content management systems, blogging tools, just enabled just anybody. And so we were no longer just competing with, for example, other companies. We were competing with, you know, people posting their breakfast on Facebook and people posting, you know, blog posts, you know, talking about their last vacation and mommy bloggers. And I mean, everybody yep. was producing content. And so the sheer volume went up, the quality went way down. And so the Google algorithm, whether it was, you know, butterfly or hippopotamus or whatever zoo animal they had at those times, were actually trying to focus in on how to surface great high quality content, you know, and we can, it's fun debate and, you know, probably harder drinks than we're having now over, over how effective that was. But that was the real driver of it was the sheer voluminousness of content. Well, wow. yeah, like you're making me think about my own personal history as a content marketer, probably that of many people who are in this field of like watching your job just completely change as technology <laughs> adapts yeah. and evolves, you know, exactly. like I, I, yeah. Distinctly remember starting my business and saying, we're just going to be writers. And like I hired creative writers who had sometimes advanced degrees. And I was like, this is the way that we solve this problem. We write as a group, we learn, we, we build processes around engaging with subject matter experts. And it worked really, really well. But I found myself very 
very quickly going from, I want to be a writer and write to I'm managing a team and effectively becoming a web designer myself. Yeah, because like, exactly. you know, like at first I was like, oh, the problem is there's a lot more customers out there if I could get them to build a website. So then I got to find a partner to build a website. And then I start seeing these guys charging $10,000 to build a website that literally is like almost the default theme from WordPress, even back then, which was plenty sure. good. Yeah. And I really like, so like the first step in this was for me being like, oh, I could just like add on a few thousand dollars and do that myself and get it done in half the time. Like that was a pro prodigious, profound moment for me. And eventually that happened with SEO too. Like even in the early days of content marketing, SEO felt like this like arcane art, like this technological, difficult to understand black box, which it is, but for a different reason than what I thought, because I thought these guys knew something I didn't. And by like 2016, 2017, I was like, oh, we're doing SEO. We like, we are SEO. I get it. Like that's interesting. So, you know, just being a writer, just writing good words isn't enough, but it is interesting to think about how far we've come in just the well, last 10 years. And you know, what's interesting, and you said something really important there, which was, it was also in that 2010, to 2013 time frame, you know, people forget that pre-20, let's call it 2008-ish, you know, pre-sort of financial crisis, and, and I'm using that a bit arbitrarily, but it's a, it's a good marker. Yeah. Websites up until that point were art projects, right? Every company wanted to differentiate with some cool, really far out, interesting, double column, you know, heavy, heavy, heavy imagery website. And they were all art projects, right? And so, and they were beautiful, right? The websites of those days were absolutely spectacular and beautiful and interactive and all kinds of things. And then what people realized was, yeah, they're beautiful, but nobody can find them, right? You know, yep. and, you know, you, it's lovely that you have this beautiful flash animation and that'll bring back some memories. But, you know, you get this wonderful flash animation or shockwave application on your on your website and it's beautiful, but nobody can find it. Yep. And so once those blogging templates and templating generally started to become sort of the order of the day it became about how readable, how spiderable was your website versus how beautiful it was. And so they stopped becoming art projects. Yep. We'll drop the Space Jam website in the show notes. <laughs> That's the first one yes. that comes to my mind. All your base are belong to us. There we go. Okay. <laughs> you guys remember DVD menus? This is another thing. Oh, yeah. It's the same same time frame. I'm thinking about like, oh, I found an Easter egg because I hit up on the damn remote three times. Yeah. And exactly. <laughs> what a weird CD little... ROM CD ROM menus. I mean, I'll take uh, yeah. you back if you want to go back. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> These things that are lost to us. I'm I'm sad now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna go whip out the DVD player after this. Yeah. Gotta buy one first, I think. Well, the, Robert, what you said there uh, earlier about volume and volume yeah. versus quality. That's why we needed to seek out what was actual quality because of the sheer volume that was being input. I believe we're going to be seeing something similar here in, in current day. So let's talk a little bit about content creation and how create how we create quality content. So Robert, what do you consider to be one of the most common or most significant mistakes that, that can be made by marketers when creating content? What should be avoided? So... I'll speak to two, which are which we see the most often. And the first is you 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 actually said it in the question, which is the business and marketers in particular don't define what quality means, right? Yep. In other words, they don't set an objective or a goal for their content. So therefore it's really hard to know what high quality means. And and when you ask somebody what does high quality content, you know, what is high quality content? Well, it depends very much on who you're asking, right? You know, ask a TV producer what high quality is, and it'd be that which puts butts in seats. Right. So 
Is it any wonder that you get a show like The Kardashians, which is high quality content because what does it do? It puts butts in seats. But if you ask an educator that same question, it is that which actually provides value and teaches a lesson effectively. If you ask an auteur, right, some author or some novelist or a film director, it is that which expresses art in a meaningful way, et cetera, et cetera. So everybody has their own objective and definition about what quality is, but businesses so rarely define it. Yeah. Preach. And, 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 it's, and it's really a, a critical thing. I mean, I just... This is something that I feel like, you know, you did such a great job of explaining that, but I, I want to like zero in on that for our listeners specifically. Sure. Yeah. Like if you're in the business of selling content, any sort of creative marketing content, and, and I don't mean selling it to, to a customer necessarily, you're selling it to an internal stakeholder, you're selling it to a sales team who wants to see the value, or you're buying it from somebody like having this discussion it seems so obvious to say it out loud, but it is absolutely not. I can't tell it you how happens. many times. Yeah, it doesn't, no. it doesn't happen. Yeah. No, and then like, we'll be like, I'll be working on a project with a, a customer of ours doing our pillar-based marketing thing where, you know, I think it's obvious because I wrote the freaking book on it that like the first thing we're doing with our content is we're building topical authority. We're not really worrying about, you know, is this the highest traffic generating keyword we can rank for? It's more about, is this really critical to Google's understanding of what authority on this topic. And, and so I'll tell people like, first, I don't really care about what you're trying to sell or, or what traffic you're trying to get. I'm trying to build you an authority foundation for which you could start publishing anything you want and get the rankings, get the organic traffic, get them on the uh, higher converting terms, get them on the higher traffic terms. But like, I can't tell you how many times I've been like at the end of the process, looking at the results that we've gotten with, with building that topical authority. And someone says, yeah, but my traffic hasn't gone up very much. <laughs> and I'm right. like, okay, okay, okay. We'll, we'll get there. We're, that's, that's phase right. two. That's phase two. But like, the point is, it's just like, even if you think you're being explicit about this, all parties involved, you're probably not. And, and doing not. so is huge. And, and by the way, that, that conversation doesn't happen internally either, right? I mean, that's, that's probably the biggest failure is that the marketing team doesn't actually set acknowledgement with sales, with the C-suite, with everybody else in terms of what is the actual objective of this content marketing, content project, content initiative? What is it we're actually trying to achieve here? Is it higher conversions? Is it more traffic, more reach? Is it broader awareness? Where, where are we actually focused on as a success metric, basically what ends up happening is more, right? That is the goal, more. Well, more what? Well, more everything. That's That ends up being the sort of goal. And so then you end up having that conversation that you just described, which is, well, it, I'm not seeing my traffic go up. Well, that wasn't the initial objective. It didn't right. work. Exactly. It didn't work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So yeah, I definitely cut you off. There was a part two to this. You had another angle, right? The, yeah. Well, the other, the other thing, which is actually looking at the content as a set of connected experiences, right? So you're, you're touching, I think, a little bit on this, at least mm -hmm. from my limited understanding of pillar-based content and building those things out, which is how do we start connecting those experiences together? So in so, so many ways, what we see with businesses is the reason that they fail is because the, the internal teams compete with each other, even on the same website, right? So the PR and comms team is competing with the demand gen team and the demand gen team is competing with the sales enablement team and the sales enablement team is competing with the brand team. They're all competing weirdly for the same keywords, same key phrases, same content ideas all producing them, even to the extent where many of them have different SEO agencies or different SEO freelancers or people working for them in conflict with each other, 
And so there's not a conjoined business strategy around what we're doing with content. It becomes an individual sort of part of the funnel. So I'm seeing so many amazing content experiences get created at the beginning only to be fed into an awful sales enablement thought leadership experience, right? Where everything you're doing there is basically self-sabotaging yourself against what's going on in the next step. Yeah. And the bigger your organization, the more likely this is going to be a problem. And so this is something that you need to start thinking about, even if you're still in growth mode, even if you're not at a point where hundred percent, you even have a sales enablement thing to worry about, right? Like, it's like, how do I start understanding the way that we like to talk about it is choose your own adventure. That's, that's the label we put on this. Like anyone who's doing content, right. Needs to let their audience choose their own adventure. It doesn't mean that in my opinion, that doesn't mean you, you only have one page on your website. That's about the one thing that's important to everybody else or whatever. What it means is that no matter how someone finds their way into your content, it's not the beginning. It's not the end. It's not the middle. It's, it's an entry point. And there's so many other places to go. And what we always talk about is the best next. What's best next. What I mean by that is When I create a piece of content, any piece of content, whether it's at the customer service level or whether it's at the very top of the journey at the awareness level, my question for at the end of every piece of content and throughout as sort of a backbone is what's going to be the best next experience for them to have? Because what I don't want to create is what I call barbet content, which is, yeah, it's findable. But then somebody finds it when they're going, what was the name of that thing where we had to do the, let me Google that. Ah, yes, here it is. And yep, that's it. And then they put their phone back in their pocket. What you want is that experience to be as, oh, these guys want me to actually download this thing or go to this other experience. Oh, I want to do that bookmark it for later or whatever it's going to be. What's the best next experience that should happen after every piece of content? Again, I want to underscore something for our audience. You know, those of you who've been following along and hearing us talking about pillar-based marketing for, I don't know, two years now. The reason pillar-based marketing is effective is because we're looking at data in a completely different way from traditional SEO. And we're saying, statistically speaking, we think it's possible to understand what the next best is. We think we know based on what question led someone to our website, which page they landed on. We we believe it's possible. We're at a point now, the data that we're ourselves accessing, it's very, very possible to know that like not every time, but like most of the time, somebody who asked this question, this is the next one that they're going to ask you. Exactly. What's the intent? What's what's their intent? That's and that as a marketer, that's all you can hope to ever know. That's all you can hope to ever know is what is if you know intent, you are 90% of the way through great marketing and 95% ahead of other marketers out there. Oh, totally. Oh, wow. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Beautiful. So, all right, Robert, I'm, I'm glad we're not in the same room so you can't r- reach across and, and choke me, but ha- how sick are you of discussing AI? <laughs> That's funny. I'm actually not, I'm not sick of it yet. There's definitely a fatigue setting in. There's certainly a, 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 you know, in the 440 yard dash, we're (laughs) right around that last turn there. And I can see fatigue starting to set in a little bit, but I think, you know, what I'm sick of, I would say, is the whole notion of, and it's a bumper sticker and people that I really respect are actually out there still saying it, which is this idea that basically AI won't replace you, but someone using AI will. It's like, I, I, I really hate the whole fear thing. I hate the whole mm. using fear to drive the adoption of a particular technology or tool set. You know, it's just, it's really annoying to me to remove our humanity from it because basically saying that the tool is what's everything and we are minimized in that. And I just prefer to look at it the other way around. I've beat this metaphor to death on this show and other places, but like 
when you first are allowed in math class to use a calculator, like there are rules for how you use that calculator. Like the teacher, it is the worst case scenario for a teacher to know that like you're going to shut your brain off. You're not going to learn the theory behind what you're doing and you're just going to start typing buttons into a calculator. 100%. For the first time, writers and creatives in general have Have a calculator. calculator. And I love that metaphor. Love that. It's just, you know, like... uh, I am an idiot when it comes to math and like 90% of everything, but like particular like math, I also happen to love astronomy. Does that mean that because I have a calculator, I'm going to like figure out something just mind blowing about quantum physics or astrophysics? No, like it's just a tool. And and I do believe to a certain extent, and not to disagree with you, Robert, because I agree 100%. I do believe to a certain extent that like if I'm trying to make that kind of a discovery and I do have the brain for it, but I'm choosing to use an abacus. I'm kind of dumb for that. But like, I also don't believe that that generative AI is as universal a tool as a calculator in the first place. Yeah. Well, and here's, I'll clarify that just about my, my statement for just a moment. It, it, first of all, it's the fear that I dislike most, most yeah. of all. It's, it's yeah. the spreading of the, of the FUD, right? Fear, uncertainty, and doubt about the whole thing. But to be really super clear, the way that often expresses itself is that it'll, it's going to erase 30% of jobs, right? And so what we have to realize is that jobs are not people. Right. It is it is activities. Jobs made up are are made up of activities. So will 30 percent of the activities that writers do get either enhanced or replaced by A.I.? hundred percent. The same as Photoshop, the same that happened with digital photography that happened, the same that happened with Xeroxing, with typing pools, the same that happened with cameras more generally. The thing would happen with every single content creation technology that has ever emerged since the printing press. Yes, activities have been replaced or made more efficient. And then and the same is true with generative AI. So activities and, and, and jobs will be replaced and enhanced. And it is up to us as people to enhance ourselves. That's why I love the metaphor of the calculator so much. Writers now have a calculator. That's a great way to think about it. I I like to think that all of us in content marketing in a good 10, 20 years are basically going to be the the command crew of the USS Enterprise in (laughs) in the next generation. These dweebs are out there captaining, piloting a spaceship. And like each one of them is like, oh yeah, when I'm not fighting aliens, I like to play the, the clarinet. Like, like there, I, I like to read archeology span books, you know, like we're going to be like hitting around, just making ourselves better because the actual hard parts of our job are going to be replaced. And then we could spend our time with jazz or whatever. So Star Trek has entered the chat. So, okay, we have, so I'm a Star Trek fanatic. I didn't right? even know that for the record. I did not yeah. know that. <laughs> and, and so, One of the things that I've been talking with people about recently is to say, imagine for a moment that you're in Star Trek, right? And one of the most used sort of tropes within Star Trek is the fact that they have this food generator. Like literally, you push a button, you want chicken soup, and chicken soup comes out, right? And basically, imagine what that technology did to the professions of food preparation and chefs, right? The number of jobs that were completely eliminated with the idea of a food generator. And think about that. Is that a good thing or is that a bad thing, right? Was that a, if we had the technology today to have a food generator where you could literally at the push of a button create and materialize food today, would that kill the job of a chef? And the answer is no, of course not. It just changes the way that we think about creating the abundance that we want to create. And so it changes us. It changes the way we behave, but it doesn't necessarily replace the thing that we love to do. 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you gave that calculator horse one last kick while it was down because that took us down a good path. Dare uh, me to do it again, Drew. I'll do it next <laughs> week. I don't care. <laughs> oh, I know you will. I know you will. All right, so that's great, Robert. One last question before you get here. What you just covered there is is great, and, and it it discusses a little bit about how the writer and, and the content marketer will be assisted with AI in the future. Yeah. How do you see this new technology influencing the customer or, or consumer experience? Yeah, that's a tough one to answer right now because it can go sideways, right? You know, because not everybody's going to be so wonderfully sanguine about the whole situation and and there will be dumb decisions that are made. And so mm-hmm. I'm not, it's not lost on me that bad decisions can be made here. But I'll, I'll say two things, which is one, at the end of the day, when we think about marketing and content teams and the way that is integrated is ultimately AI is a process problem. It's like any every other technology. It's a process challenge, not a technology tool challenge. And so the biggest challenge we see for marketing teams is how do we integrate this into our workflow? How do we integrate the right kinds of generative AI functions? You know, as I've said many times before, creating content is the least interesting thing that generative AI does, right? Research assistant, calculator, you know, writer's calculator. Those are interesting things that it does. And how do we integrate that into the workflow? That will help improve, theoretically, our ability to spend time on higher quality content, the human-oriented, high-quality content. Now, at the same time, I think the bad decisions could be made. And as it's, we start to get more and more vomitous levels of AI-generated content out there, and you're starting to already see this with a lot of news sites that are being literally auto-magically created by AI, right? Where news is just, you know, exploding with content because AI can just take news items and, and create stories and stories and stories. It makes it really hard. And I think you're seeing counterbalance to that with companies like the New York Times and CNN and, and many of those places that are saying, look, we're not going to let ChatGPT bot spider our websites. I think that's a foolish move. I think that's sort of a, that's a little bit like trying to stick your finger in the dam of, of something where there's already 400 million other holes with the dam. Yep. So all of that, I think, is at a really big sort of tipping point right now. And, I, and it comes back to your point of, are we sick of talking about AI yet? I think what we haven't really explored are the nuanced discussions about the decisions that are going to get made about the use of AI. And I think that's still very much a story to be written. And I'm afraid of what we're going to start training ourselves as people, as consumers to do in the meantime. Oh, 100%. Yes, exactly. Like, I I mean, allegory for you. Let's say that there are two grocery stores within two miles of my house. And this allegory I'm going to say is partially based in reality. And one of them, which has the stuff I like better, like their selection is better. It's a better store. They, They didn't get Apple Pay until about a month ago. So I, being supremely lazy and a piece of human garbage who refuses to reach into his pocket for his wallet, decides instead to drive to the other store with less stuff that I like so that I can just double click my button on my watch and pay for it that way. So the lesson here, number one, I'm a scumbag. Number two, um, (laughs) I can see in my own psychology patterns of like, well, if this new shiny thing that actually like saves me some time or makes my life better, even if it's in like the smallest of ways, like in this allegory, like I'm going to start changing my behavior to to go that path. And I'm wondering how quickly we're going to get to a point where like if there's a question somebody wants to ask online and the little barred response isn't a sufficient answer and it is never going to be a sufficient answer. Does that mean I'll just give up on trying to learn that thing and I'll just move on to something else that's easier to find because I'm used to that instant gratification. That's, that's what keeps me up at night. hundred percent. That's, I mean, 
It's a great, it's a great point, you know, as well as sort of as, as AI starts to get in integrated into search, right? Where instead of getting a range of answers, there is one answer, right? And, and it's the acceptance of that as gospel is, is going to be a, is going to be a very, very big challenge in the near term. I think they can ultimately fix it in the long term, but what we just have to realize is that from a consumer perspective, asking generative AI a question and looking for Google for a range of options, just very, two very different use cases and how Google and Microsoft and others start to merge those ideas, those use cases, and start to try and balance those things, boy, is it going to be interesting to watch. Boom. That'll be a great in there. Robert, this is a great conversation. I re really appreciate you coming on. Before we let you go, though. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Before we let you go, though, we will hit what we call our lightning round. And it's just, lightning uh, round. <laughs> Ooh, lightning round. All right. Here we go. Robert, what was the last thing that you searched for? Don't lie. Be honest. Uh, <laughs> I'm just trying to remember. The last thing I searched for was probably, it was last night. It was Apple's, Apple, it was something about Apple syncing iTunes. It was an Apple iTunes syncing issue that I was having with my new iPhone. Oh, and phone? I was, I was searching for basically customer help to try and sort all that out. It wasn't syncing right. Got it. A new phone why. already. Ryan, are you jealous? Well, I, I was waiting for the fifteen. It wasn't. It's There's not a new no fifteen. Way it's the 15. Uh, okay. Yes, not. Okay. It's not a fifteen. No, it's. It was a new. It, uh, it's a new sort of. I just got a. I had a. I had an upgrade coming for an old line that I had. So I was like, oh, I'll just get an old iPhone thirteen and sort of make it my. You know, my burner phone, just that I can have around. So I was trying to get them synced up and all that. And it, it wasn't working very well. Okay. Did you find the answer? I did. I did indeed. Was Apple the one who gave you the answer? It was indeed. Yes. It was one of their sort of, you know, you know, you, when you search for challenges on Apple and they have the community sort of answers. Yep. So technically I think it's not an Apple person because it's always a community manager who inevitably says reboot or check your router, which just annoys the hell out of me. But yeah, it's, it's, yeah. But other than that, it was actually a useful answer. Uh, I love it. All right then. Good job, Apple. All right. Let, let's hear this one. Cause this is why I like asking uh, marketers because there's no two marketers that are the same. So Robert, what are your favorite offline hobbies? I'm a piano player, so I play music and then I love to hike. My wife and I love to hike. Southern California is a great place for that. Beautiful. We'll have to get you and Ryan playing together sometime. Ryan, got, Ryan on guitar, Robert on piano. Right on. I'll yeah. bring my guitar to DC here. I think this episode will probably come out like a few days before Content Marketing World, I, I think. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Robert, are there any uh, books or movies that have made you a better marketer? Oh, oh my God. We could do a whole show yeah. on this. I am a, I am a business book junkie. The one that I would, the, there are two, there's so many. So the, the one that I would point to, I'll point to an author. How about an author? Okay. Rita, Rita Gunther McGrath is, she's wrote a book called Com the, the End of Competitive Advantage. And it's, it's probably my favorite business book. And also Young Me Moon, who's a Harvard business professor. She wrote a book called Different, which is a great book on differentiation. But I, I could regale you with a book list. Yeah. Throw links to those in the yeah, show notes. We, we right? will. Yep. We'll, yeah. we'll throw some links in there and I've already jotted them down myself. So beautiful. And last question here, Robert, what is a marketing SEO or content myth that you've busted in your career? Content myth that I've busted in my year. Oh, well, I would say that the quantity matters over consistency. Basically what we've seen year after year after year after year is that it doesn't matter how much content you produce. It matters how consistently you produce it. And, and high quality wins the day, just as we were talking earlier in the show, over quantity every time. 
Love it. Yep. Well, what Robert, a great conversation. Yep. Thanks again. Yeah. This is a beautiful conversation. We really appreciate it. We'll uh, do Wonderful. it again. Absolutely. Absolutely. My pleasure. This was a totally fun conversation. I've, I haven't, I haven't talked this much about SEO in a long time. Hey, me neither. That was a joke. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> beautiful. Well, thanks again, Robert. And uh, that's it for this episode of page one or bust. Are you ready to dive even deeper into pillar-based marketing? Here's your chance. The brand new book, Pillar-Based Marketing, a data-driven methodology for SEO and content that actually works by co-hosts Ryan Brock and Christopher Day is now available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook editions. Find it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or look for the link in the show notes.